Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So I think that uh, we are all going to be learning very much from our next guest today. Uh, he's uh, built something from nothing to uh, something meaningful. In fact, uh, they did an IPO on the business. So I think without further ado, uh, Matt Salzberg, welcome to the show today. Alejandro, nice to uh, talk to you. So let's do a little bit of a walk through memory lane here, uh, Matt. So you did your undergrad and then also your MBA at Harvard. Uh, so right. how would you say that this has helped, uh, you know, to build your network? Well, look, I mean, there's um, some really excellent entrepreneurs that have come out of Harvard undergrad and, and Harvard Business School, obviously. I think, um, you know, in particular, I was an undergrad at Harvard around the time that Mark Zuckerberg dropped out and started Facebook. And I think, um, you know, a lot of my uh, friends and peers ended up going to Facebook in the early days. And and I think partly because that period of time, you know, there were a lot of great companies that came out of um, Harvard and entrepreneurs that were inspired by that story. Um, and so, you know, built a network um, partly through that, as well as, you know, at business school, obviously, a lot of people go to business school with the aim of eventually starting a company. Um and, um, you know, there were some really excellent companies coming out of my business school class as well, kind of like um, the Tough Mudders of the world, uh, Rent the Runway, you know, um, uh, some, some really excellent entrepreneurs um, and there as well. That's amazing. Did you did you get to see Mark Zuckerberg on the hallways? <laughs> you know, no, I, I wasn't. We didn't really know each other. We had a lot of mutual friends. You know, it's not that big of a school. Um, okay. You know, I was an early, early user of Facebook because, as you know, Facebook got started off at Harvard College, um, yeah. you know, right when he launched it. And so I think I was user number like, you know, in the 1000 or something like that range. Really cool. Oh, really cool. And, the, and and your first job, like your first real job, that was a Blackstone. Uh, what were you doing here? So when I graduated from college, I, I went to Blackstone. I was an analyst in the private equity group, um, you know, and that was basically where I got my first, you know, understanding of finance, sort of investing, you know, real business understanding. When I was an undergrad, I actually took a job uh, running a cleaning service at Harvard. It was a, you know, four or $500,000 a year revenue student run cleaners business. That was really my first introduction to business. But in the more professional context, you know, Blackstone was an amazing training ground for just understanding, you know, how people really think about strategy, 
you know, making money. Um, and you get exposed to tons of different industries. It was, I was there during 04 to 08, which was kind of the heat of private equities, um, you know, really, really big heyday, um, more recently, um, where Blackson was doing $20 billion public to privates every week. And, you know, it was, uh, uh, a fund that went from $6 billion to $20 billion while I was there and the company itself went public. So it was a really exciting time to be there. Wow. And I, and I believe Blackstone now manages something like over 400 billion. It's insane. Yeah. It's become a huge company. Wow. So what did you learn from your experience at Blackstone? Well, I think, you know, fundamental investment analysis was, you know, the biggest part, what makes a good company fundamentally, how to value companies you know, um, I had the chance to meet lots of CEOs and attend lots of board meetings. And so got to really understand um, how to interact with CEOs, how to speak with CEOs, and how CEOs talk to investors. I think, you know, between my time at Blackstone and then later on in my career, I was in venture capital at uh, Bessemer Venture Partners. I think one of the skills that you develop that you can really bring to starting a company is how do you talk to investors? How do you, um, you know, uh, uh, say the right things? How do you um, speak their language so that you can communicate your ideas effectively to them? Yeah. And I wanted to ask you about that. So after Blackstone, then you do your MBA, right? And then after the MBA at Harvard, then you decide to join Bessemer, like you were pointing to. So why the shift from private equity to VC? Well, you know, I didn't love private equity, I would say. You know, it was a really great job, but it was a grueling job <laughs> right out of college. I mean, you're working 80 hours a week. You're doing um, somewhat mindless tasks in terms of financial modeling all night long. And I wanted to do something. I love the business and intellectual sides of investing, but I wanted to do something a little bit more creative in terms of creating something that can change the world, you know, that consumers could be emotionally involved with and that could leave a legacy. And, um, you know, I decided when I was at Blackstone that I really wanted to start a company to have that impact that I wanted to have. And, you know, I was a pretty young guy with not a lot of experience. So I decided going to business school was the right path for me and actually spent much of my business school time getting ready to start a company, you know, getting exposed to venture capitalists for the first time, meeting startups for the first time. Um, and then concluded, I really wanted to, I had more to learn still. And that's when I joined Bessemer after that, um, to, build out my network of early stage investors, you know, um, learn the pattern recognition that um, venture capitalists have for knowing what the elements of success are in the early stages of a company so that ultimately I could put in place something like that. And then, you know, seeing how to think about what a good early stage business idea was, um, you know, and, and having the chance to explore that on someone else's dime while in venture capital. So I think that was a really effective path for me to get ready to start something. And talking about that, uh, Matt, the elements of success and the pattern, um, what, what are those elements of success in early stage companies? Well, you know, there's a lot of them. I think, um, obviously, the co-founding team is a really big one, um, you know, in terms of bringing together um, the right skill sets. And in some cases, in, in fact, one of, my, one of the things that I recommend is having different skill sets in a founding team. So not having two founders who are two founders from the same business school with the same backgrounds, right? But having on, in our case, you know, I recruited my co-founders to join the company um, and I recruited uh, uh, a CTO who had a background in software development and building e-commerce systems, as well as a chef who had had a operationally oriented catering business um, and supply chain businesses to join me so that I could have people that complemented me in terms of the areas that I didn't 
you know, wasn't as strong in uh, with my background to help me. And I think that is the composition of the founding team is a really, really big one. And then, um, you know, understanding what industries and how venture capitalists would think about what businesses should be funded so that you could attract the right capital and frame your business the right way. And with Blue Apron, which is the company that I ultimately started, you know, um, we I knew that I wanted to go after a giant category. The grocery and food category is one of the largest retail categories that exists um, because I knew that, you know, being in a big market was an important element of success for an early stage company and allows you the room to maneuver in your business model as you develop your company. Um, and quite frankly, it was also, um, one of the biggest retail categories that had very little e-commerce penetration. And I think, you know, when I started Blueprint, it was like very low single digit percentages, like one or 2% of the grocery industry was sold through e-commerce, which to me, and this is how a venture capitalist quite, quite frankly, would also think about it was such a crazy idea because every other big retail category had become extremely dominated by e-commerce, you know, even in that period. And so thinking about the inevitability of that trend um, in a giant category meant that there would just be lots of opportunity. And how do you tap into that? I think yeah. was, um, you know, a big theme for us. Uh, and, and Blue Apron, obviously your, your first uh, company, you know, and, and doing like taking that first leap of faith is a, is a really big deal. So I guess at what point do you really decide, Hey, this Bessemer thing is cool, but I need to start my own thing right now. So it was kind of towards the end of 2011. Um, and actually when I joined Bessemer in my job interview at Bessemer, I told one of the senior partners that I was going to leave and try to start a company as soon as I humanly could while at Bessemer and, I, and they, they did still gave me the job, which was amazing. Um, so I spent a lot of my time at Bessemer getting ready to leave. Um, you know, I, I liked it there. Um, you know, they're great, uh, investors. I learned a lot, but you know, I knew day one that I wanted to try to start a company. And so I spent my time there. Um, thinking through ideas. I spent my time there meeting people and getting ready to do that. And actually, um, an entrepreneur in residence at Bessemer named Jason Finger, who was the founder of Seamless um, and was hanging out at Bessemer at the time, thinking about what he was going to do next. And I became pretty good friends. And he was actually the first person that said to me, you know, you should just, why don't you just go and start figuring it out and I'll be your first investor and give you $25,000. And uh, I was like, Oh, well that great. Like, yes, let's, let's do that. And, uh, I did have an idea at the time. And at the time it was actually a different idea than Blue Apron. It was not, not even the eventual idea that I ended up launching. Um, but I left and I recruited my first co-founder, uh, to join me, uh, to do that and raised even a little bit of money before, um, I even settled on the idea for Blue Apron. Uh, so you already had, you already had the idea. So you actually said, this is it. You gave your, let's say your, your, your notice at Bessemer. And then what was that process? Because you were talking about like on the elements of success, the founding team. So, so when you were thinking about like, okay, this is the team that I need to look for, or that I need to assemble, what, what was that process like for you guys? Well, so like I said, day one, the idea that I had was different than Blue Apron when I first left Bessemer. And um, for that idea, which was um, a totally different idea, I thought one of the elements of success, obviously, was having a, a CTO who understood software development better than I did because I wasn't a um, technically-minded, you know, trained-in computer science uh, software engineer. And, you know, I had to build a custom software and a website and all the like. And so I went out and recruited uh, a CTO, and I met my first co-founder, 
through uh, a mutual friend actually who had started another company in business school and, and, and was friends with my co-founder. We met at a happy hour and I liked him. I thought he'd be a good co-founder and CTO. And I went out and recruited him to, to move from Boston to New York to join me to start this company. And it was just the two of us, you know? Um, and we were working on this other idea for a little bit and built the website and did some initial customer work. And, you know, over the course of a couple months actually generated some pretty good, couple hundred thousand dollars of revenue actually with this idea. It was a crowdfunding site for science and research, uh, believe it or not. This was at the time that Kickstarter was becoming a really big, successful phenomenon. And I looked at that and I said, well, wow, Kickstarter is successful for art and creative projects. Someone really needs to serve the science and research community, which had very many of the similar um, funding problems and could leverage the internet to bring people together. So we did a bunch of work on that. And, you know, in the course of a couple months, kind of concluded, having done a lot more deep customer diligence, that that wasn't going to be the business that was going to be wildly successful for a variety of reasons. And that's when I said, we got to change what we're doing 180 degrees. And that's how I came up with the idea for Blue Apron. Um, you know, looking at big retail categories, looking at the opportunity for e-commerce to transform them, designing a solution, um, you know, uh, that would that could kind of solve the logistical and other barriers that have prevented e-commerce from transforming grocery um, and then, you know, and launching that. And so um, at that time, it was just the two of us. And I went out and said, all right, well, now we're starting a technology enabled food business. Like, I really should get someone on my team who knows something about the food industry, because I'd never been in the food industry. And that's um, when I recruited uh, our third co-founder to be our chief product officer. And, um, you know, he was a chef who had worked with my wife's mom, believe it or not. Uh, she had used to be the New York City Film Commissioner and threw a bunch of parties to attract uh, films to New York to do business in New York for, for tax reasons, tax credits and stuff like that. And so he had been the caterer at those parties. And, uh, you know, that just, it just kind of all came together. He loved the idea and wanted to join the team. And, and so he joined the, as the third person on the team. But if you think about it, every business has different operating needs and every individual has different areas of strengths and weaknesses. And so for me, as a business minded, um, str strategy minded, marketing minded, um, you know, financially oriented, uh, founder, I wanted someone who understood the other two legs of our business, the food and the technology. And that's why I brought those guys in. Got it. So what were some of the early days of the uh, blue apron? Once, you know, you had the team, you knew, you know, what was, what was going on and what kind of future or path to follow? Like what were, what were some of these early days? Yeah. Oh my God. It was crazy. I mean, the early days were crazy. So literally the three of us launched the business ourselves. We, um, built the whole first version of the website, you know, ourselves, we, um, uh, rented a, I think it was like 500 square feet commercial kitchen in Long Island city, New York, um, in the middle of nowhere, um, uh, that a restaurant was using for like extra storage. Um, and we begged 20 of my friends to try our product in our first week. Um, and then literally designed the recipes, did the photography, bought the food, packed the boxes and delivered them pretty much ourselves, um, to get customer feedback and see where it went. Uh, you know, we were literally like putting cans of canned tomatoes on skateboards. Cause there was a Costco down the street where we were shopping at Costco and like bringing the food back to our 
um, you know, kitchen to, to do what we were doing and, you know, working with restaurant distributors and, and the like. And, you know, the first week we launched the feedback that we got from our customers was incredible. You know, um, I had researched a couple of other business ideas in the past and you always hear from people who say, Oh, what do you think about this idea? They're like, Oh, yeah, that's a good idea. You know, if you built that, maybe I'd try it. You know, I think that's kind of interesting because very few people will just tell you to your face that your idea is bad. So you get a lot of false positives when you're doing research, but with blue apron, um, people's eyes bulged out of their heads with excitement. Like you could tell qualitatively, this was emotional and exciting and amazing for people. You know, we would, we got two page written stories detailing every aspect of the cooking experience. We had people in the early days telling us things like you've changed my life. You've saved my marriage you know, crazy stuff like that, which was just shows how emotional food and home cooking can be and how important it is to our perception of ourselves and our culture. Um, as you know, that the place where people come together over home cooked meals in their kitchens, like one of the most intimate and important moments of your day. And so we were helping people be better versions of themselves. We were helping people be proud of what they created and bring a sense of hospitality to their homes. And that feedback we got gave us a ton of confidence that we had a, a really good idea. And obviously the very hard part of the business after that was the operations and the scaling of it. Because um, when you're dealing with fresh and perishable food and trying to deliver that nationally in a scalable, low-cost way, that's incredibly difficult and incredibly operationally intensive. And so we essentially embarked on the next six years building the business from nothing to 900 million of revenue in six years. Um, and it was a nonstop, um, you know, uh, effort to keep up with demand because we had so much demand. Um, you know, the supply took up all of our attention in terms of being able to provide our product. So I guess, I guess during, during this time, especially during the early stages, like when you're going, let's say, from like an A round to a B round or to a C round, like what were some of the challenges that you say that the business or that you guys were resolving? Because you were saying now that obviously the delivery and making sure that the food, you know, arrives well. I mean, what other challenges were the ones that you guys were resolving? Yeah. So, well, of course, we had to design excellent recipe experiences that people loved. But I would say the really hard part was bringing together 30 separate ingredients every day, you know, from a variety of different suppliers, doing all the quality control, the portioning of those ingredients into the right amounts, the packaging of those ingredients, getting them all into one box at the end of the day without any of them missing or arriving late from a supplier or whatever. And then, you know, getting that in a high quality way to the customer on time every week. I think um, because we built into our model this idea that the recipes every week would change, which was one of the reasons customers came back to us week after week to constantly try our exciting new recipes, that made our supply chain very complicated. Um, you know, because we changed over the rest, the ingredient set that we were using every single week. So we had to build a very robust supplier network that could handle that kind of just in time and flexibility that we needed. Um, and so that was hard. You know, we were constantly outgrowing suppliers. We were constantly seeking out new suppliers. We were constantly cutting out middlemen and going deeper and deeper into our supply chain up to the point where we eventually started growing ingredients directly with farms um, just for us. And that gave us access to specialty ingredients that our competitors couldn't get. 
because they weren't able to do the sophisticated supply chain work of growing ingredients with farms. And it also gave us cost advantage, quite frankly. So um, that was all very difficult. And then part of this work early on, you know, required a lot of labor. Um, and so we had to hire thousands and thousands of people over the course of a couple of years in order to portion, package, you know, shipping and receiving, quality control, food safety, you name it, because we were not automated um, in any of these processes until very later on. And so, um, you know, until much later, when we were able to raise a good amount of capital, invest in state-of-the-art production facilities, automated bagging machines, automated bottling machines, and the like, you know, we had people doing this by hand. There were people in our in our facility in big refrigerated rooms taking a pallet of kale and portioning it out into little bags of kale. Wow. And that was, you know, it was very labor-intensive um, yeah. and just managing the workforce um, in a high quality way in terms of hiring, onboarding, training, managing productivity day in and day out, because at our core, we were essentially manufacturing products, right? I mean, we were essentially running manufacturing centers. Um, That became uh, a huge focus and a huge um, suck of our time, quite frankly, because it was all consuming. Got it. Got it. And what was the, um, what would you say, Matt, that it was like the tipping point or the moment where you were like, wow, I think that we are into something big here? Well, like I said, literally day one, when the customers gave us the feedback that they gave us, and I heard how emotional they, emotionally they talked about what we did, that was when I thought we had something really special. And, you know, the business itself didn't really have any major inflection points, it grew exponentially day one and just kept growing exponentially through most of the early days of the business. And that was really, um, I would correlate that to one, the fact that our customers truly loved our product and were emotionally involved with it because they were the ones creating it at home themselves, right? They were cooking the meal, not us. You know, they were proud of the meal they created and that caused them to share it on social media. It caused them to share it with their friends, caused them to talk about it at work. Um, and then one of the really smart things I did in the early days is I created this referral program that, um, gave free deliveries of our product to our most avid customers to give to other customers. And what that did is it created this incredible word of mouth because only our happiest, best customers were the ones recommending the service. We didn't give the opportunity to recommend it to people who might not have been as happy, um, uh, though there, quite frankly, weren't that many of those in the early days. Uh, and, um, you know, th- we gave a free trial to someone who had never tried the product before, and they were always amazed by how good it was. Because if you remember at the time in 2012, 2013, almost nobody had ever ordered their groceries online or through the mail before. And yeah. so people would always say, oh, that looks great on the website, but is it going to be fresh? Is it going to taste good? Like, how can I trust this? And so when you have a friend introduce you to the idea and that friend had a good experience and there's no cost to you to try the product because it was a free trial, you're going to try the product. And everyone who tried it said, wow, this was amazing. This was way better than I expected. I'm going to buy more. And so that built into our growth funnel, a very exponential curve in terms of our growth. Uh, In addition to the social media work and a lot of the PR work we were doing, that was incredibly cost effective. and. Still to this day, you know, referrals are one of our absolute biggest channels. And at the time, it was, I mean, 
you know, the dominant share of our acquisition for a very long time. Nice. And at what point did you guys decide, hey, it's time to raise some money here? Well, so um, as I mentioned early on, before I even came up with the idea for Blueprint, I raised a little bit of money. Um, when I left Bessemer and I was working on this other idea, which I called Petri Dish, uh, you know, the crowdfunding site for science and research, I, I think I raised like seven hundred, eight hundred thousand dollars right as I was doing that because I, you know, and, and I was fortunate to have been able to do that because I was in the venture capital industry and had spent time building relationships with angel investors who might want to back me. You know, it's very hard to raise to raise angel investment money when you don't know the angel investors, you know, and you're just pitching someone cold. But if you build a relationship with them over the course of a year and they get to know you, it's, you know, quite, quite a lot easier. And so I did that um, and raised this money um, early on um, and, you know, thankfully spent almost none of it on that other business idea. Didn't pay myself a salary. I paid my co-founder a small salary to get him to join me. And that was really the only costs. Um, and so when we abandoned that idea and pivoted to Blue Apron really quickly, we still had all that money in the bank. And that's one of the things that allowed us to get a very fast start in the business. And then revenue kicked in because with Blue Apron, you know, per customer, we were generating 60 or $120 a week. And very few businesses generate that much revenue per customer for a consumer scale business you know, uh, and be in a market quite as large as ours with as many customers who are potential customers. So, um, you know, the revenue piled up very fast. And to the point, I think at the point where we were doing like a couple million at least of revenue run rate, we said, hey, maybe we should raise a little bit of money because things are going so well. And we can step on, you know, put some fuel on the fire and, and um, you know, invest in marketing and more operations and people and the like. And so I went out and I raised our first professional round from first round capital led it. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, took it from there. And, and I also see that, um, I mean, you raised from like really impressive people. I mean, Fidelity, Bessemer, Stripes group, Box group, just to name a few. So did you meet them all through the, through your time being a VC at Bessemer or, or what was the process of, of, of getting in front of these guys? Yeah. I mean, we raised a lot of capital over the years. So, you know, I think that first, very first angel round was people I knew, you know, mostly $800,000. I think the first round, um, round was a couple million maybe. And then, um, Bessemer, I think put in 5 million at our B stripes group. Um, and so I knew Bessemer from Bessemer and then stripes group who I had met while I was at Bessemer led the C, you know, I think that round was about a $50 million round. And we were probably doing, you know, 50 million plus dollars of revenue run rate at that point. Um, so we were already a pretty big, fast growing business. Um, and then, you know, a year or two ahead of our IPO, when we were already doing many hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue, um, Fidelity invested. And that was during a period of time where the mutual funds were actively seeking out pre-IPO businesses to get involved with. Um, because from their point of view, you know, by the time the IPO happened, it was already priced for perfection. They wanted to get in at a discount, build up a large position. They can't get the allocations that they wanted in IPOs. And, um, you know, we're willing to get in a little early risk, a little bit with illiquidity 
in order to do that. And they ended up being a really excellent partner for us for a long time. Um, but we were a, a very late stage, you know, pretty big business, uh, by the time they got involved. And, you know, I had just met them on the fundraising circuit when we were raising money then. Got it. Because how much money did you guys raise uh, prior to the IPO? I think it, it was around 200 million. Got it. Got it. And for a business like Blue Apron, like when you're going from like A to B, from B to C, like how did you see those expectations shifting on a business like yours? Yeah, well, you know, look, every, every time you raise money, you're making a commitment to give at least a 2x, 3x plus return to that investor you're bringing in, right? And so you're raising the stakes every time in terms of the scale of exit that you're shooting for. Though I will say early on, almost day one in the company's life, I had said to myself, I wanted to create the kind of business that could go public. Um, and so, you know, I think that had been an ambition of the business early on, but every time you take on capital, you need to have more and more ambitious plans for the next phase. Um, and so, you know, certainly the expectations go up. I think, you know, when you take money from someone like Fidelity, you're making an implicit commitment that you're going to take your company public. Um, you know, because that's what they're looking for. Um, and, you know, I think, um, you know, obviously with more capital, you professionalize your management team, you um, continue to up-level everything you could do. Got it. Got it. And what is it like to do an IPO, Matt? <laughs> It's grueling. It's grueling, <laughs> I will say. You know, we had a very tough IPO. Um, you know, we uh, did an IPO uh, in summer of 2017. You know, we were the first company in our public, uh, our, our, in our industry to go public. Um, you know, I was the CEO still at the time. We, were, we had around a $2 billion valuation in the IPO. But unfortunately, our IPO priced well below the initial range that our investment bankers told us that they thought it could get done at. Um, and look, there's a lot of reasons that that happened. I think one of the, um, obvious things that happened during our roadshow was the day we launched our roadshow, uh, Amazon announced the acquisition of Whole Foods. And I think that that really threw a lot of our messaging off. And a lot of investors were trying to make sense of how the world was changing, um, and got a little scared of, you know, um, the category. Uh, quite frankly, uh, now that Amazon was entering quote unquote grocery, even though quite frankly, it had very little to do with our business specifically. And, you know, look, doing a roadshow, it's, it's incredibly grueling process. You do two full weeks of like six to eight back to back meetings every day. And when you're the CEO, you're talking the entire meeting, you know, usually repeating yourself because the questions are very similar meeting to meeting and the pitch is very similar meeting to meeting. And um, you're in sometimes three different cities in a day, uh, traveling with the investment banks and their, you know, fancy private plane and, um, you know, pitching. It's really, really tiring. And I think, you know, for us, it was especially tiring because, um, you know, our pricing was coming in below the range. And, uh, you know, this, this acquisition just happened, which had um, shifted the attention of a lot of investors in the industry. Got it. Got it. And, and after the IPO, I mean, for... For you guys, it was a little bit bumpy, and uh, you were obviously leading this. You were the CEO, founding CEO. So I can even imagine, like how how difficult you know this this situation was was for you. No, uh, I I wanted to ask you here, like how was this experience for you, and and who did you need to be in the face of these circumstances in order to be effective? 
Yeah, well, look, I mean, it was it was definitely very difficult. I was a public company CEO for a period of time uh, after the IPO. Um, you know, our stock started trading down the day our IPO, you know, happened pretty much, um, partly for technical reasons, because the, you know, the thing priced with some negative momentum, and then, you know, for other reasons as well. Um, and it, it was challenging. Uh, you know, I think when you go public, you know, you have a stock price that um, distracts your employee population in particular, and you lose a little bit of the control over the narrative of your business because you're bringing in so many different new stakeholders who might not understand your business as well as you do. And startups are very good at private companies in particular, crafting their narratives, you know, um, explaining their value prop to consumers, um, you know, curating their, their PR. And we were very good at that as a private company, but it became very difficult when you have, you know, um, uh, buyers and also short sellers putting out stories about you some that are accurate, some that are inaccurate, you know, um, and, and people just focusing the press on the day-to-day movement of the stock price rather than the substantive things of the company. And so that becomes a distracting thing. And I think it's, it's, um, important to focus the attention of your employee population on the company, not the stock price, um, easier said than done. Um, and you know, it, 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 it you know, it, it was challenging, I will say. Um, you know, for us, you know, I ended up stepping down as CEO and, you know, uh, becoming chairman. And so, you know, for the last year and a half, I haven't had any day-to-day involvement in the business. Um, we put in place uh, a CEO who, you know, had been a public company executive and, and, you know, I'm still one of the largest shareholders. In fact, the largest shareholder, uh, collectively with, with my family, uh, of, of the company, and, um, you know, involved at the board level uh, uh, and, and trying to be helpful where I can. Got it. Got it. And what was the process of um, of recruiting the CEO? I mean, at what point, you know, did you guys decide, OK, you know, let's let's bring someone that has been involved with with public markets? Well, I had, I had actually hired him a couple uh, a year or two to me, two years earlier than the IPO to come in as our CFO. And he was an experienced uh, public company CFO. He used to be the CFO of Under Armour. And so, you know, we'd worked together for a period of time at, when I was CEO and he was CFO and he was sort of the natural uh, uh, person uh, to come in after that. Got it. So I guess in terms of um, of responsibilities now, obviously now, you know, the CEO uh, role is this person leading it. And now you step up. I always like to say that he's stepping up as the executive chairman of the of the business. So what 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 are the responsibilities now of 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 you, Matt, as the executive chairman? Yeah, well, so so I'm chairman now. Um, you know, I, I uh, was executive chairman for a period of time during the transition, but, you know, I, I'm really just a board member at the company. I don't do anything day-to-day. Um, and so, um, you know, my responsibilities are what a public company board chairman responsibilities are. I, you know, chair the board meetings, um, obviously am uh, involved in, uh, uh, in, you know, different committee work and, um, helping evaluate the, the CEO and, um, you know, helping with strategy, but, you know, look, our CEO runs the company now and that's his job. And, you know, my job is to be a board member, not a, not a person running the company. And that, yeah, I will say that's a very challenging transition for someone who, you know, created the company, um, was CEO of the company for a very long period of time. And, 
um, cares a lot about the company, its employees, and, and, and its customers. And, you know, especially since I've stepped down um, over the last year and a half, um, the company has had, you know, a, a tough time. And so it's frustrating to, you know, be in that position where you're not, you know, obviously as involved uh, as it used to be. Um, and, you know, watching something that you obviously care about have, have some challenges. And how can you let it go, um, eh, Matt? Because, you know, I, I, in many instances, you know, like just, just shifting from the CEO to the, to, to the chairman or to a board member role, it's, it's tough to let it go. Like, how, how do you let it go, I guess, emotionally and, and from, any, from every, every perspective that you can think of? Like, what was that process for you? Yeah, I mean, I, look, I don't have any uh, great answers to that. You know, I think time, time you know, you move on. Uh, just like any job transition, any anything, and you know, I I am um, really proud of what I created. You know, I think um, you know the company has changed so many people's lives. It's still a very valuable uh, company, you know, with the, an incredible brand and incredible products, and uh, you know, some really happy customers. And so, you know, I think I'm just proud of what I was able to contribute, and and um, you know, uh, you know. Uh, you sort of move on to your to your next things. Absolutely. And and how many employees are uh, in in Blue Apron? Um, I don't want to give you the wrong number. Or at uh, least at the time, let's say at the time of the IPO. The time of the IPO, we had probably around five thousand employees. Wow, that's amazing. Well, you you should be definitely be very proud. And I actually was a I have been a customer of Blue Apron. So um, so there you go. So that was my little secret. So yeah. uh, in 2015, uh, Matt, uh, you launched EmbarkBet. You were part of the founding team. So yeah. Can you tell us a little bit more about this initiative? Yeah, so Embark was the second company I started. And um, I started Embark with two dog geneticists, one of whom was a friend of mine from college, and the other was his brother. And uh, we uh, incorporated that business together in 2015 while I was CEO of Blue Apron. Um, and so, um, the idea for Embark, uh, came from some of the research that Adam Boyko and Ryan Boyko were doing. Um, you know, Adam is a veterinary science professor at Cornell and Adam was his, uh, Ryan was his brother. And we carved some IP out of Cornell and created this direct to consumer dog genetics company. I helped them formulate the business plan, you know, um, frame it correctly, get the right strategy. And what we do is we sell these um, tests to consumers. You swab your cheek, your dog's cheek, rather. You mail it to us. We, we process that and tell you all sorts of things about your dog. So breed mix, we tell you um, 170 health attributes. We tell you, um, you know, um, uh, we have a relative finder product. So you can, like, meet your long-lost dog cousin, which is really interesting. And, you know, that's about 80% of the business, about 20% of the business is actually breeders who professionally breed dogs um, and, um, you know, use our products, uh, uh, our tests. In addition to, we have some marketplace products where breeders can find other breeding dogs based on their genetic profiles for breeding um, from that. And so anyway, that's the business. We incorporated together. I also, in addition to co-founding it, was the first investor. So I gave them uh, their first capital. And then I joined the board right away. And I've been on the board of that company since 2015. We launched it in 2016. And then we've brought on some really great investors since then, um, you know, raised some follow-on capital. And, and the business has been doing really, really well. It's a private company. 
so I won't give you their numbers, but um, it's a pretty substantial business now, you know, in the tens of millions and uh, of revenue only after a, a few short years. And they have a really happy customer base and a really big strategic upside because we're collecting all this really excellent data on dogs and their genetic profiles and their behaviors and their outcomes and um, able to, in addition to selling great tests to people, um, you know, do research that can improve the lives of dogs and extend their health um, and can be commercialized in a variety of ways um, uh, with with partners and the like. So it's a very exciting company. And, um, you know, I'm really glad I got involved with it. That's amazing. I actually saw that they've raised more than six million and from like really sophisticated folks. Yeah. So that's really, really amazing. Like some of these investors that that came in are also from your guys' ecosystem that you know from like previous ventures. Um, so a bunch of the angel investors who invested in Blue Apron also became angel investors in Embark. But then we also brought in some new investors. Um, you know, we brought in uh, Founders Collective, who's on the board with me, Eric uh, Paley, uh, you know, who've been great partners. Uh, Slow Ventures is an investor. Um, and then a, num a number of other uh, early stage funds, too. Got it. So so what's, uh, what's next for you, Matt? <laughs> Good question. So, I, you know, I'm still pretty busy with my board work. Um, and I'm, I'm working on that, you know, not quite ready to announce something, but I'm, you know, working on starting a new business and, um, you know, getting all the pieces in place to do that. I think for me, you know, starting companies is something that I love to do. Um, I love the impact that you can have and the creativity involved. And it, it's something I think I've gotten pretty good at and, um, you know, want to keep doing that for the rest of my career. I love it. I love it. So uh, this, this question that I have for you now, is actually very timely. So knowing everything that you know now. Right. So and, and this is something that you could tell yourself now or, or, or even better, like before you even started with Blue Apron, knowing what you know now, if you could go back to the past and give yourself one piece of advice before launching the business, what would that be and why? Huh, that's that's a tough question. I think. Um, it's, you know, there's so many different pieces of advice that can be helpful. But, look, you know, I think it's you know, take every day, one day at a time. And, and I think, you know, when you're starting a company, you never, um, you don't realize, but there are, you know, we, when you put one foot in front of the other every day, it seems like small steps, but you could climb a whole mountain that way. And, um, you know, I think, you know, as long as you're making good decisions on a timely manner on a day-to-day -day basis, you're, you're going to have success. And, um, you know, look, there's not just one path. That's the right path there's not just one decision that's the right decision and so you know you hopefully you have a pretty good batting average on your decisions you need to make more right decisions than wrong decisions and avoid some fatal decisions but you know if you're working hard every day and putting one foot in front of the other you're going to make progress and you're going to be successful um and so you know i think that that's helpful to know you know when you're thinking of starting out which sounds it sounds really intimidating but really when you're in it you know um It's just a matter of a number of small decisions back to back. And um, it's helpful when you're there knowing, you know, giving you some confidence when you get overwhelmed with the roller coaster of emotions on a day to day basis when you're starting a company from, the, you know, the swings of good and bad to take a step back and realize, you know, how far you've come and how you can keep moving on by just really focusing on on progress day in and day out. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. So what is the best way for folks that are listening to reach out and say hi, Matt? 
Uh, Twitter, probably, you know, uh, contact me on Twitter. Uh, you know, I'm at Matt Sauls on Twitter and, um, you know, uh, that would, yeah, that'd be great. Look forward to hearing from people. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Matt. It has been a pleasure to have you on the Dealmaker Show today. Yeah, thank you. This was a lot of fun. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.